Amen. Thank you, worship team. Well, let's uh, just bow in prayer as we uh, open up God's word this morning. Father, we come before you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has to change our life. Lord, to renew us, make us spotless. You said that your word washes us like water to cleanse us and make us pure and and a bride acceptable for you. And so today we pray, Lord, that you would do that, that you would wash us through your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow me to speak your word in power and in truth, and that we would be able to uh, receive your word today as a message from the Spirit. So, Father, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Augustine is one of the most important church fathers. He's from the 4th century uh, and is considered to be kind of like an outstanding church father. Uh, Both the Catholics, the Orthodox, the Anglicans, and the Protestants alike, we all consider him absolutely fantastic. And uh, so when I came across his extremely allegorical interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan, I was a little surprised. (laughs) But according to uh, Augustine, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan is about a man going down to Jerusalem. And that man represents Adam, actually. And being stripped of his clothes actually represents his his losing his immortality. And him being beaten up actually represents him being persuaded to sin. The priest represents the law. And the Levite, the prophets. And, of course, the Samaritan represents Jesus Christ. Uh, and, of course, Je- uh, the Samaritan takes the, the wounded man to, to the inn, which represents the church. And the two coins given to the innkeeper represent the promises for this life and for the life to come. And the innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but that's uh, an interesting allegorical response to this this. Uh, parable of Jesus, uh, quite a bit different than I've ever heard before. And you know, there's a certain appeal to this. I, I kind of like it. It, it kind of shows, you know, mankind losing the battle with sin and, and being destroyed and the law and the prophets not really able to help. Uh, and then Jesus Christ coming along, saving the day and, uh, the church being the one that, that helps people back to God and, and all the promises and, It kind of makes sense. Uh, It's very intriguing. But I have to ask this question. Do you think that's what Jesus Christ meant to teach when he told that parable? To me, the parable is more about, you know, the religious people not really being very there for people sometimes. Uh, You know, I, I think it's... Sometimes religious people are cold and indifferent and almost cruel, while kindness and helpfulness can come from the least expected people. And, and really, the, the whole thing is about being neighborly, right? Uh, and and that it, being neighborly cuts through racial and religious divides. That's really what the sermon on, or, or the parable of the Good Samaritan is about. So the problem with the allegorical interpretation is that the original intention of what Jesus really meant when he when he said this parable can be completely lost in the process in seminary we were taught that expository preaching is the only kind of preaching to do and should always be constrained by what the text 
actually says and what the author's intent, not just what it says, but what was the intent of the author when he wrote what he wrote. Um, and so we're taught that, that that's the way we should preach too, but we're also taught that we should bring the gospel into all of our messages. You know, as much as possible, get the gospel into the sermon. And of course, Augustine, while not adhering to the first idea that we need to go with what the, in the intention of the author, he certainly fulfills the second intention that the gospel is being brought into this uh, scriptural narrative of the Good Samaritan. And, uh, and so, you know, indeed, the human mind is actually designed to appreciate the beauty of intricate literacy, connections that are ex- excited by the fulfillment of kind of patterns that we see. And this makes allegorizing the Bible very satisfying and, and a lot of fun, actually. But is it correct? That's the question I want to ask first this morning. Well, if we're replacing the original meaning with an allegorical one, no, it's not correct, okay? But if we are illustrating a biblically sound concept by allegorizing another passage, it can be helpful. Um, But we have to be careful to maintain the difference that, that, you know, Augustine's uh, interpretation of this passage isn't the final uh, understanding or interpretation, uh, the correct interpretation of the passage. Um, now, I'm not sure what Augustine was actually, what, what his idea was, whether he was illustrating the gospel from this passage or whether he really thought this was actually the correct way of interpreting it. I somehow, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that it wasn't him thinking that this is the only way to interpret this passage. Um, so the allegorical rendering of Scripture has been around, well, at least since the writing of the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament writers themselves sometimes use allegory to make the point. I mean, in Galatians, when Paul says that Hagar, Abraham's slave wife, represents the old covenant, while Sarah, Abraham's free wife, represents the new covenant, that's pretty allegorical, you know. Uh, but this is the Holy Spirit-inspired allegory. And so we recognize that, you know, the Holy Spirit can give an allegory that makes sense. And, and it, it's authoritative because it's in the New Testament. Um, so while allegory has been used by the Holy Spirit-inspired writers, we also realize that allegory in the hands of a preacher or teacher can get really far away from the original meaning of the text. It can be pretty problematic, actually. So it's kind of less than ideal for authoritative preaching. Uh, So allegorical interpretation usually focuses on some connections with the text, usually relating to Christ, sometimes to other things or other people. Uh, And it's usually from the stories of the Old Testament applying to the New. So even some of the aspects of the Old Testament are kind of difficult to understand sometimes, but when they're allegorized, they can shed light. Um, So by and large, um, the allegorical interpretation is falling out of practice, out of favor in the Western church, uh, particularly in Protestant denominations and and, uh, and particularly among evangelicals. 
the historical grammatical exegesis of scriptures is what we use and for good reason because that gives the the authority in the word of god not in the preacher's interpretation of the word of god but it's actually founded in the scriptures the problem with being very exclusive about that is that there is some profound imagery in the old testament that clearly represents things found in the new testament uh, it's a prefiguring as you uh, if you will and so one of the really helpful developments in recent centuries has been the concept of the old testament type as prefiguring a new testament reality and although it's kind of similar to the allegorical interpretation typology is less prone to wild speculation and abuse okay uh, according to spears uh, presently we use the word typology to refer to connections between the old testament an old testament concept typically and an escalated fulfillment of the, in the gospel of jesus christ that is textually warranted textually warranted okay that's the key and while we use the term allegory to, allegory to refer more arbitrary connections that are not textually textually warranted so I, I like what he has to say about that kind of differentiating between pure allegory and really a type that's used in the old testament that's reflected in the new testament and oftentimes the new testament does that very thing very clearly and so it's within the historical grammatical uh, method of of hermeneutics um, so perhaps the most important distinction is what's driving the connection between the passage and the allegorical interpretation is there something in the text that it indicates that it's a legitimate connection or is the connection or originating you know entirely from the mind of the preacher you know uh, this is the most important distinction to make and provides us with a substantive criteria for distinguishing between typology and allegory the bible gives us warrant for making make a connection between the old testament passage and the fulfillment of christ of course the example is john the baptist calls jesus the lamb of god right john 1 verse 29 indicating that the passover lamb is a type or a prefigurement of christ an even clearer example is in romans chapter 5 where adam is called a uh, typos uh, that's a greek word for uh you can see it there on the screen it's written in greek t-u-p-o-s typos clearly been trans translated into english as type and so um if the passage anticipates a future fulfillment whether in, it's in the immediate, immediate literacy there or the historical context or the ultimate fulfillment in the messiah it's essential to trace how the passage is ultimately fulfilled and that's the work of the new testament scholar or the, the biblical scholar and the best way to do that is see how the, the passage in the new testament reflects back to the old testament story um, if textual connection is, can't be drawn we have to consider this, that the source is really the preacher not the passage and so a preacher has less authority than the, than the word of god but the word of god has 
great authority, and so we need to be careful. So last week, started a sermon series called Desert Wanderings, right? Referring to the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years and before entering into the promised land. But before we go too far into these desert wanderings of Israel, and I make a bunch of connections from them to, to us and how it's related to our Christian life, I'd like to establish that textual connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, so that the Old Testament wanderings as a type of the New Testament Christian life, okay? Uh, this isn't something I made up in my own mind, okay? This is something that is there and it's warranted in the text of the Bible. Uh, it's very tempting to say, oh, this Old Testament concept represents this New Testament concept, uh, idea without any textual reference. Uh, and that's dangerous to do unless you have it founded right on the word of god now for some types uh it's pretty clear that it's obvious like like the old testament sacrificial system you know that's the type of christ it's very clearly connected to christ's death on the cross and clearly christ fulfills all of the um sacrificial law in the old testament i mean that's why what he came to do absolutely clear um so you don't really need to proof text that somewhere however you know half the book of hebrews says that very thing so uh if you if you doubt it just go to the book of hebrews you'll you'll soon see it but in the case of the israelites wandering around the desert connecting that to our lives is a little less obvious and so i'd like to establish that connection today and then hopefully you'll you'll have seen this this sermon and it'll provide uh, an understanding for the rest of our time as we talk about desert wanderings um and and i don't know whether we can safely say uh you know it's connected to our life wanderings or our maybe our covid 19 wanderings i don't know if that's legitimate but the fact is i believe the desert wanderings of the israelites is very connected to our lives today and serve as examples to them and so in order to make this textual link let's grab our bibles and turn to first corinthians chapter 10 verse uh, 1 through um, 11 and uh, i'm just going to read this um, these verses for us for i do not want you to be ignorant of the fact brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea they were all baptized into moses in the cloud and in the sea they all ate the same spiritual food they drank from the same spiritual drink and they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied him them and that rock was christ nevertheless god was not pleased with most of, most of them and their bodies were scattered over the desert now these things occurred as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on the evil things they set theirs on. Do not be idolaters, as some of their, them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan rivalry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Yeah. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did and were killed by snakes and we and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel 
These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful lest you fall. May God bless the reading of his word. What an awesome passage. I just love this thing. Do you notice how Paul twice says what happened to the Israelites are actually examples for us? Twice he says that. And then also, did you notice all the examples, the specific examples that, that Paul refers to? You know, the idolatry, the sexual immorality resulting in 23,000 dead, the testing of Christ resulting in death by snakes, the grumbling resulting in death by the destroying angel. I mean, all of these things are references to the desert wanderings of the Israelites. They can all be traced through the books of Exodus and Numbers. You can see that the, the people uh, sat down and, and got up to drink in, in, in uh, indulge in rivalry. Exodus 23, sexual immorality, Numbers 25, testing Christ, death by snakes, Numbers 21. Uh, grumbling, well, that's all over the place <laughs> in Exodus and Numbers. Uh, but in Exodus 12, verse 23, you see that they, they are destroyed by a destroying angel. And so all of these things point to the fact that what Paul is talking about, that these are examples for us. And it's really about how to live the Christian life, all of these things. So we can apply these things. We have... Uh, uh, Example, or we have the, the Word of God telling us that this actually is for our benefit and that we need to use these things as uh, references. And so I like to pay particular attention to the first four verses of this passage, okay? And that is where it says, Our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, I wish you could, we're all here, so I got to ask you, you know, what, what does the cloud mean? What is the cloud? What is the sea? What is being talked about? Well, of course, last week we talked about the pillar of cloud that uh, was there during the daytime to guide the Israelites and, the, and the, the fiery pillar of cloud at nighttime so they could see, and it still guided them. Uh, and and, and we, we talked about the, the Israelites going into the sea, the, the, uh, the Red Sea, and that the water was stacked up on both sides, and the Israelites went right through the middle of the sea. And, of course, this is actually what, what is being talked about here. And so how were they baptized into Moses? Well, they were baptized into his, his teaching. Uh, and, and, and notice uh, it's called baptism into Moses. It's interesting that this was the moment that the Israelites really started to understand who Moses was, who God was, first of all, but also that Moses was God's person. <laughs> he was the man of the hour. In fact, the last verse that we talked about last week, verse 31 of Exodus chapter 14, says this, When the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. You see what's happening here? The Israelites, this was a baptism into Moses. They started believing not only in God, but also that Moses was his servant. They were getting it. Uh, and so that's, 
this isn't what they received at Mount Sinai. Sometimes people think, well, they really became Moses' followers at Mount Sinai when they got the law. No, it was here at the Red Sea, at the baptism in the Red Sea, really. Now, it doesn't take quite a genius to figure out what Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians. The parallel for them is obvious. This crossing of the sea was a type of baptism, a type of believer's baptism, actually. We're not baptized into Moses. We're baptized into Christ. We die and are buried with Christ in baptism, and we rise again with Christ out of the waters of baptism. Paul is pointing out that the Israelites went through a very similar experience. Then facing the Red Sea, I mean, when they got uh, Pharaoh's army behind them, uh, and, and, and like they're good as dead. <laughs> and so they go into the sea, and that's like baptism. And then they come up the other side of the sea, and then they watch as God wipes out their captors, their, their taskmasters, their slave drivers. They all get wiped out. And they no longer have to be afraid of being enslaved by Egypt all over again. And so you can see the parallels between our baptism. You know, we see the end of our old life of slavery to sin. Praise God. Baptism is a sacrament that celebrates the end of slavery and the start of of freedom. Praise the Lord. I hope you see the connection. And now let's look at the next four verses. Or two verses, I'm sorry, verses 3 and 4. They all ate from the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. And they all drank from the spiritual rock, which is Christ, that accompanied them. Oh, I'm sorry, got that wrong. The same spiritual life that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. What, What spiritual food is he talking about here? What spiritual drink is he talking about? Well, if the baptism that he's talking about is in Exodus 14, it's pretty clear that the spiritual food is manna talked about in Exodus chapter 16. I mean, it comes two, two chapters later. And the spiritual water that he's talking about, the spiritual drink, it's pretty clear that that's found in Exodus chapter 17, where God tells Moses to strike a rock and water came gushing out of the rock and the Israelites were able to drink it. Obviously, supernatural experiences, this bread from heaven, the manna, and this water coming from a rock, supernatural spiritual events. And so, so Paul says this is a, a type of a New Testament reality. I think you'll, you'll be able to connect the dots of what the New Testament reality is in just a moment. Because I'm going to just stop the sermon right here for a moment. I'm going to come back to the sermon But we're going to take a few moments to experience the connection with the other Christian sacrament that Paul is talking about here, the Lord's Supper. So the passage I usually use for the Lord's Supper is actually the first uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians, and it's found in... uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it's actually the next chapter from the, the passage we just read. Um, and it says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I'd encourage you to take your bread and just uh, pass that around uh, your home right now um, to those who are there. 
and, and break it into pieces and pass it out. And let's do what Jesus did. Let's give thanks for the bread before we eat it. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for this bread that reminds us of your broken body and how you died for us. And so, Lord, as we partake of this, we ask, Lord, that we would partake of you and that you would spiritually nourish us with the bread from heaven. For we ask this in Jesus' name. great song because it reminds us that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes and it's the proclaiming of his death and his resurrection is implied in that in that he came awake and that he's living in us till the end of the age it's amazing and so in the same way jesus took the cup and he said this is the cup of the new covenant which is offered in my blood whenever you drink it in remembrance of me do, it, do so in remembrance of me, sorry. So uh, let's give thanks for the cup. Father, we thank you for this cup that represents your blood. We thank you for its transforming power. We ask, Lord, as we drink it, that you would transform us, that you would give spiritual life to us through the drinking of this cup, Lord. We pray that you would be involved in this uh, service that we hold in your honor this memorial that we hold in your honor for we ask these things in jesus name amen let's drink together Amen. Thank you, Lord, for such great symbols to remind us that we need to eat of you, Lord, drink of you daily, regularly. So did you catch the connection? Did you experience some spiritual food? Did you experience some spiritual drink? You notice how the type kind of goes both ways. Uh, next slide please Uh, the spiritual food that they ate in the desert and the spiritual drink is clearly a reference to the sacraments of communion Uh, just like the going through the 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 the, uh, the the red sea was represented baptism so this reference to spiritual food and spiritual drink is clearly a reference to the other sacrament of the christian church the holy communion but notice also that jesus is the type of the rock so they actually the 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 uh, allegory or the typism is going backwards as well and and paul writes into you, you get that nowhere in the passage do you, you realize that the rock that brought water was christ but when we understand that jesus is the giver of the holy spirit and the and the the light the water of life flowing out of him you realize that yeah that's that's the exact picture of christ and so 
Paul uses these three things to teach the Corinthian church, uh, the baptism by the sea, the eating of the man, and the drinking from the rock, to say that all of the Israelites participated in the same supernatural events. They all did it. They all drank, they all ate, they all got baptized. In other words, they were Orthodox Christians, as it were. They were Orthodox Jews, I guess. But they believed. But this didn't keep them from falling. Judgment was constantly falling on them for their disobedience and their disbelief. And the parallel to the sacraments of the church, baptism, eating of the bread that we just partook of, drinking of the wine, it's unmistakable. And so is a lesson. Just because you've uh, uh, participated in the spiritual activity of baptism and communion doesn't mean that you're not susceptible to spiritual demise. Yeah, I think I gave a message about that. The Israelites didn't enter into the promised land even though they had been sacramentalized, as it were. You know, They just never made it. And so Paul is therefore drawing an analogy to the Hebrew Bible that the sacraments do not save, that the believers therefore should not assume that their, their faith or take it for granted. We believe that oh sorry <laughs> uh believe it or not that was the introduction to the message <laughs> luckily for us today the message is much shorter than the introduction uh here's the thought for the de- the day if the de- desert wandering wanderings of the israelites are a type of the christian journey from slavery to sin to the promised land of heaven as Paul clearly expresses that it is, uh, then the crossing of the Red Sea typifies the Christian's baptism into Christ. It's really the start of leaving behind the Egyptian slavery. The glorious destruction of the satanic hold on our lives is really being talked about here. It's typified by the drowning of the, the Egyptian taskmasters in the Red Sea. What a glorious picture of the triumph of Christ over, over sin and over the power, uh, and its power over us. Hallelujah. What a savior. The real message of today is this. Listen closely. If you're wandering in the desert, it might be a COVID desert. It might be a joblessness desert. It might be a desert of loneliness. It might be a spiritual desert. Maybe a temptation desert. Whatever kind of desert you're experiencing, don't be like the Israelites. And don't forget the joy of this moment of being rescued from the Egyptians. The joy of your salvation. Don't forget the joy of crossing from death to light. Don't forget what Jesus did on the cross for you, crushing the serpent's head. Notice the typology. Destroying Satan's grip on you. Stealing heaven, stealing, seal, I'm sorry, sealing you for heaven. Oh, what a happy day when I was saved. When Jesus washed my sins away. Oh, happy day. <laughs> That's amazing. Listen to what they, how the Israelites rejoiced when, over three millennia ago when they sang about uh, God's salvation of them. It's found in chapter 15. I'm just going to read through it real quick. And, you, and, and what I'd like you to do is think about your deliverance 
out of your Egypt, that is the bondage of sin, the destruction of sin that was in your life, think about your deliverance as I read this, the way they sang. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and rider he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Skipped one too many pages. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army where he's hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers has drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has shattered the enemy. The greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who oppressed you. You unleashed your anger, your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging of the waters stirred, stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Your unfailing love will lead the people you have redeemed. Your strength will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. The anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. And the people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them by the power of your arm they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by O lord until your people you brought pass by and you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance the place the lord you made for your dwelling the sanctuary O lord your hands established the lord will reign forever and ever what an awesome song of praise. I wish I, we could hear them singing. And you know, the, the cool thing is, is that the, a few verses later, it says that um, Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and the woman follow, followed her with tambourines and dancing. And I kind of get this picture that we should join in with these ladies and sing like never before. And I, and I, I think of something like this. 